Hi, it's dating coach Chris Luna from Craft Charisma. Welcome to the Craft Charisma podcast, our free audio coaching program where we interview the top experts in the world at helping you become the man you've always wanted to be. My guests today are Dr. Daniel Lieberman and Michael Long. Dan is a professor and vice chair for clinical affairs in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at George Washington University. Mike is a trained physicist and an award-winning writer. Together, they wrote a book on dopamine called The Molecule of More, How a Single Chemical in Your Brain Drives Love, Sex, and Creativity, and Will Determine the Fate of the Human Race. Can you guys talk to me a little bit about the idea for your book, uh, how you guys came up with it? What was the purpose and goal? Well, you know, dopamine plays a very large role in psychiatry in so many different ways. Problems with dopamine is at the heart of a lot of common psychiatric illnesses like schizophrenia, addictions, attention deficit disorder. And when I was learning psychiatry as a medical student and a resident, it just kept coming up over and over again. And it wasn't until I graduated and became a teacher and had to start teaching this to other people that the question occurred to me, how is it that this one single molecule can cause problems in so many apparently different areas? Because people with schizophrenia don't look anything like people with ADD or people with addictions. So I started to dig and when it became clear what the underlying commonality was, I realized just how fascinating it was. And I said to Mike, hey, we got to write a book about this. Let's start by talking about what is dopamine. Can you define that for the people who are listening? And then maybe we can talk about how it functions in the human body and affects things like thoughts and behaviors. Sure. So dopamine is a chemical. It's a molecule. And uh, it plays a very important role in the brain. It's a neurotransmitter. The brain's made up of billions of individual cells, and, and they've all got to work together to process information and to solve problems. And when these individual cells communicate with one another, they do it by exchanging chemicals, these neurotransmitters. Now, there's a lot of them, and different ones play different roles. Some of them actually carry information, but dopamine's a little bit different. Dopamine doesn't exactly carry the data, dopamine does is it orchestrates large volumes of other brain cells to help them work together in groups in order to solve problems. And so sometimes dopamine is called a neuromodulator because mainly what it does is it turns up the volume in some places and down the volume in other places in order to get the brain to focus on certain areas and pay attention to certain kinds of things. What would be a practical example of that? Well, you know, one of the simplest things that dopamine does is it makes us want things. So if you were to walk into a room and um, there was a beautiful woman over in the corner and there was a delicious steak over in the other corner, depending on what your body needed most at that time, dopamine would orient you to one or the other. Uh, could you tell me where that room might be, by the way? <laughs> it's not in this room I'm in right now, and I'd, I'd really like that. I was thinking the same thing. It sounds like a great couple of options. <laughs> yeah, where, where are these rooms? Because this is where I want to be. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I think that's really interesting. So it basically helps us 
essentially know what to focus our attention on because we need certain resources to survive and reproduce or do the things that we need to do. And we're sort of overwhelmed with lots of different forms of stimulus. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's one of the things it does. And it's more than just giving us information about what we need to focus on. It gives us this visceral drive that sometimes it can be so powerful that we are uh, we're unable to control it. And we just go after these things that may not be particularly good for us simply because dopamine is saying this is where your attention is going to be. This is Mike. And uh, I think uh, the the question when I was first learning about this, because I'm not a psychiatrist, and uh, uh, and so as we wrote this book, there was a lot of learning for me uh, as we as we went through this. And one of the questions I had was, why in the world would the brain be this way? Why why should it be oriented this way in, instead of some other way? And and the answer is 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 pretty interesting, I think. Uh, you you have to survive. You have to stay alive. And you alluded to this a moment ago. We we might not naturally uh, seek the things that we need to stay alive unless there were a system in our brains that made us not just uh, have sort of a, a a sense that those were necessary things, but gave us a difficult to resist drive toward those things. This is nothing less than an artifact of evolution from the earliest uh, earliest uh, time of man. Uh, if there was something potentially useful, uh, typically in, in the, the realm of, of, of propagating the species or finding shelter or something to eat, uh, we would feel this compulsion, which we know today is this dopamine buzz, and it would make us prioritize this opportunity over all the others. Not only prioritize that opportunity, but, uh, but notice it in the first place. So this really is uh, something that has a tie to our very survival and, and to evolution. Uh, what, what makes it interesting in the modern day is that today you've got uh, a singles bar and Tinder and supermarkets and uh, you can get a roommate. You don't have to have this compulsion to, to, uh, to be drawn to the things you need for survival. And this, this, uh, this compulsion remains, this dopamine urge remains, and it has to go somewhere else. And all the things that are around today in the 21st century are what make this problem especially interesting, because we don't, we don't have to struggle to survive nearly as much as we did before. I feel like this could make people feel like they have no control over their life, right? Like there's these things happening within their body, and they're going to drive them to do these things that they're not really aware of they're doing and they can't stop. Some are going to be useful. Some of them are, are not. Um, how does understanding the idea of dopamine help us to use it to live sort of healthier, more fulfilling lives? I think that in some ways, dopamine is like riding a bike on a hilly territory. And that is that dopamine is what's setting up the hills. If there's something that dopamine wants, then going after that thing is like riding downhill on your bike. You're full of energy. You're going fast. It's easy. It's effortless. And it is a lot of fun. If, on the other hand, what your more rational part of your brain is telling you that you want to do, and it's not exactly what your more basic primitive dopamine system is saying, it's like riding your, belt, your bike uphill. So, for example, if you're on a diet – 
and dopamine is telling you that it would be wonderful to get a box of Krispy Kreme donuts, you're not at the mercy of your dopamine. You're not out of control, but not eating those donuts is going to be like riding your bike uphill. And the same is true if you decide that you're going to work late or study or do something else instead of going out and having fun. You got to work a lot harder if you're working against your dopamine system. Absolutely. We, we have a choice. In almost every case, we have a choice. So people shouldn't ever get the idea that, oh, well, uh, the, the, the power of dopamine compels me and I have no choice and I'm going to do this because that's the way I'm built. No, you can interfere with the process and make a choice. This orients you towards something and gives you energy, but it doesn't uh, demand that you follow through in almost every case. And, and in many situations, the holy grail of life is trying to align your own personal values and your own desires with what your dopamine system wants. And we often call that finding our passion. If you can get a job that represents your passion, then you are working with your dopamine system. You wake up in the morning and you are excited to go into work and work as hard as you can because it fills you with excitement, enthusiasm, energy, and motivation. So in the ideal situation, we want to be able to work along with this very primitive uh, system, but at the same time, we know that sometimes we are going to have to oppose it because it's not always good for us. I mean, I find this absolutely fascinating because well, on so many different levels, right? There's so many things that are in modern society that have been iterated to death so much so that they sort of utilize these basic human systems and sort of hijack them, right? Whether it's uh, becoming addicted to apps or dating apps or going validation that someone might get when someone likes their posts on Facebook or playing a video game, food, right? Food is every time someone cooks a, the same dish, they are optimizing it, hopefully, right? It gets to taste better. And over time, like our, our biology uh, is craving salt and fat and sugar and we're able to get it in levels of excess we'd never have. I mean, I mean, this is a fascinating, to me, a fascinating subject for modern society because we have all these different things that we potentially could be doing that are all trying to give us that sort of short high of excitement that I guess dopamine is, is contributing to. Uh, do you see where I'm going with this? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think that you know, one of the most powerful stimulators of dopamine are illicit drugs, recreational drugs. And everybody knows how dangerous it is to use cocaine or heroin or things like that and how easy it is to get addicted. I, I think that what you're pointing out is that we are now using technology to figure out non-chemical, essentially electronic ways to stimulate the same receptors that we used to stimulate with alcohol and cocaine and heroin. And yeah, we are starting to see some of the very frightening negative consequences of people experiencing addiction-like behaviors to apps and um, other kinds of things in which people are taking over their behavior for better or worse. And this is a good opportunity to stress that it is the pursuit of the thing, the anticipation of the thing that provides the thrill. Uh, now, drugs is a different matter, of course, but on things like apps, for instance, it's the it's the opportunity that provides the thrill and not necessarily the app or the exercise itself. For instance, do you, do you celebrate Christmas? 
Yes. You do. Do you remember any of the gifts you got last year? Can uh, you name one or two of them, maybe? Um, not really. <laughs> not, not really. But, but, I'll, but I'll bet. I'll, I'll bet you remember uh, getting ready for Christmas and what looking at the packages under a tree. Uh, for sure, when you're a child, you remember that. Uh, when when Christmas is coming, the excitement is what might be in the boxes, what might be there, what's possible, because, oh, boy, that, that could be so fulfilling. But then you open the presents, and you have to actually appreciate them in the here and now, and that takes a different kind of effort. The thrill is in the possibility. The thrill is in the anticipation. It's not in the the experience of the thing, the uh, the, the sensory experience of it. In this way, you see why kids play with the boxes instead of the toys. The excitement of imagining what a box could be is much greater than the excitement of uh, actually putting this doll to use or, or playing this game and following the rules for most people. The, the thrill of dopamine is what might be. Uh, it's not what is. And that's why we named the book The Molecule of More, because dopamine is about maximizing future resources, which from an evolutionary perspective is what keeps us alive. The, the, lead, the follow-on to that, though, however, is that dopamine is incapable of ever being satisfied, because that's simply not what it does. Dopamine pushes pushes us onward for more. So if you're scrolling through your Facebook hoping to get a like to your last post, you're probably getting dopamine release anticipating the possibility of getting that like. If indeed you did get the like though, it's not going to be satisfying to you. As soon as you get it, immediately you're going to want to desire more. And, and I think that that's perhaps the most important message here is that a lot of times people misunderstand what dopamine does. They think that if they just follow its dictates, if they read one more post, one more article, get one more like, eat one more donut, they're going to be satisfied and they're going to feel happy. And that's just not true because dopamine is only about desiring. It's not about feeling satisfied. Yes, it's 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 ironic that that dopamine says get some more, get some more, get some more with the spoke unspoken promise that this will provide satisfaction. But of course, it never does. Dopamine has no capacity to provide satisfaction. It only provides the urge, the satisfaction. In fact, it shuts down completely when its job is done. And the other neurotransmitters, what we call the here and now chemicals in the brain, they have to take over at that point. There are chemicals in the brain that are capable of providing satisfaction, but interestingly, our society is not interested in them. And I think the reason is that it doesn't make good business sense to satisfy customers. It, you're much better off stimulating their dopamine to constantly make them want more. You know, there's there's an interesting example, and I'm going to throw this out here. And actually, Dan, this is something you and I don't think we've talked about much. Uh, there's a comedian, you've probably heard of him, named Colin Quinn. And somebody asked him how he knew if he was getting his comedy act right. And, and he said, when everything gets a laugh and when you're perfectly miserable as a comedian. And, and I, I understood what he meant because the joy of being a comedian was 
oh, that's not quite right. I have to fix it. That's not quite right. I have to fix it. And when everything's fixed, everyone thinks you're the funniest person in the world. But as a comedian, you're not that happy anymore because there's nothing more to chase. There's no more laugh to chase in that particular bit. Anyway, it's something that I think is an interesting application of it in, in entertainment and, and how we how we think about uh, what is going to make us happy. It's the pursuit, the pursuit. I think of all these different applications of that example in sort of my coaching or in life. Um, I remember sitting with a guy last winter and we were chatting and he was saying that he feels like he has to chase somebody in order to desire them. I mean, he obviously desires them, which is why he pursues them. But in a partner, he feels like if he doesn't have the opportunity to pursue them, then he can't have a relationship with them. Well, that brings me to to my favorite example in this in this whole thing, and uh, and that is George Costanza from Seinfeld. Everybody knows George Costanza, who was going from uh, uh, date to date, uh, girlfriend to girlfriend, constantly. Uh, and and if you'll recall, uh, George was never uh, never uh, quite happy unless he was going after a woman miserably so. And, but he would he would stay at it and stay at it until she finally agreed to go out with him or to to sleep with him or to have a relationship. And as soon as that happened, George's interest went to zero. He was done. And then he went to the next thing he had to get out he all he wanted to do was pursue as you as you mentioned your your coaching client all all that person wanted to do was uh, uh, pursue the next person and george costanza is a perfect example of what that looks like and we all probably know people like that the, the other thing i was thinking about was on a, on a personal level um this last winter i i was skateboarding shouldn't have skateboarding in new york in the winter but i i crashed my <laughs> skateboard screwed up my hand pretty bad. And I mean, I couldn't do a push up for seven months. And so I couldn't really work out. Um, the weather was horrible. My body was sort of screwed up. And so I spent a lot of time hanging out in my house, like working from home, um, eating too many donuts and I put on some weight and, and there was sort of like a satisfaction with, with doing that, right? Like with the process of like being hungry and eating something else. But eventually I put on the weight that didn't feel really very well. And, and, uh, this summer, I've spent a lot of time as my body healed, getting back into really good shape and paying like hyper attention to my diet and exercising every day. And it's really funny because these things in certain ways are like polar opposites. And yet I'm getting the same type of high pursuing each. You know, that that's so insightful. What you have just identified are two separate dopamine pathways in the brain. And, and you actually could feel them. Um, feel them working out in different ways. So there's a very primitive one. We call that desire dopamine. That's the one that makes you want the donut. That's the one that makes you want to maximize the pleasure you're going to get in the next seconds to minutes. But there's another dopamine pathway in the brain as well. And, and, and because it's dopamine, it's still focused on maximizing things in the future. But this one runs through the frontal lobes, the part of the brain that's responsible for more um, 
um, for more carefully thought out logical forms of thinking and it helps us look a little bit farther into the future and so you were maximizing your future by eating the donut but that was the future of the next 10 seconds you were also maximizing your future by eating healthy and working out that was a different dopamine pathway that's looking farther down the line how many different types of pathways does the brain have for dopamine for dopamine there's basically three there's the desire pathway that makes you want things right now there's the control pathway uh, that's the one that looks a little bit farther into the future to help you take control to dominate your environment and then there is the physical movement pathway that's the one that allows you to translate ideas and wishes into concrete action by initiating muscle movements to essentially impose your will upon the world does that affect everything from getting up to being in a fight to like what types of things you said impose your will on the world that could be met in, i mean i could interpret that lots of different ways and through different lenses can you explain based on your research what that is i, I it's actually in the most simple way possible um so for example if you simply want to scratch your head um, the very first thing that happens is somebody gives the order to scratch, and that's the dopamine circuit. It says, it says, go and do it. Let it be so. And then other circuits take over to coordinate all of the muscles. But the thing that gets the ball rolling is the dopamine. How does this come into play in relationships? Um, I want to talk about love and dating and sex, but before I even go there, how does this affect our relationships when we meet somebody like how does this I'm curious well you know dopamine is what get things started um, it's hard to go out and meet people um, it's a lot easier to sit on your couch and order pizza and watch Netflix than it is to get dressed up and go out to the clubs especially if you have one of those rooms with a steak in one corner and a beautiful <laughs> woman in the other then you know really you want to stay there but you can't please, get out of ahead. that one you can't get out of that room that's the best um, so, so dopamine desire, the desire circuit is going to give you the energy and the motivation to get you off the couch and into the club. Um, so dopamine is really what gets things going. It, it kind of promises us a better future. And it's that hope that lights the fire underneath us to meet new people. That's awesome. H how about love and sex? Like, How does this come into play with those two experiences? Well, you know, the feeling of being in love is a dopaminergic experience. It's one in which we are just full of energy, excitement. Our imagination for endless possibilities um, gets ignited by this chemical, and it is a very wonderful feeling. But as we were talking about before, dopamine is only interested about what's possible. It's only interested about things that are in the future. When the possible becomes the reality, when the future becomes the present, dopamine is no longer involved. And so if somebody wants a relationship to endure beyond that initial honeymoon period, they're going to have to learn how to transition away from the future-focused dopamine onto the more present-focused neurotransmitters of satisfaction. And those are things like oxytocin, endorphin and endocannabinoid that's what gives the long-term relationship the deep deep satisfaction 
um, that is very different from the intoxicated excitement of the short-term being in love. And that comes back to, to Costanza. Is That was what he was hooked on, that short-term moment, that thrill, uh, which is not so much a choice as, uh, as, as, as just a, a simple urge. Uh, love in a relationship is about uh, parting with the basic need, I guess. I don't want to be too, too dark about it, but it's, it's realizing that the thrill is not everything and that the choice to explore and enjoy what is in front of you is, uh, is the real, is the real long-term connection. And I think that it, we don't give it enough attention based on what you mentioned earlier about the apps triggering dopamine. We are a very dopamine focused society. Dopamine is what drives the market. It's what sells things. But we often forget just how wonderful those other neurotransmitters can be. Um, just how great it is to get together with friends that you've known for decades or to be in a relationship where you don't have to be on. You can just be yourself. You can just be comfortable. You're with someone who understands you on a very, very deep level. And that gives a kind of satisfaction and happiness that you can't get from the quick hit dopamine. And, and guess what? You don't have a choice if you want to be in love and stay in love. Uh, that dopamine thrill is going to fade from three months, six months. Maybe, maybe you're lucky it lasts 18 months. But eventually, all the possibility, all the, the, uh, the question about the future, you're going to get most of your questions answered. And as that, uh, as, as you work through that big pile of unknowns, as that pile gets smaller and smaller, the dopamine release is less and less. Uh, and, and then you are left with, am I capable of choosing to try to sensorily, if that's a word, to with your senses, in, enjoy this person? Uh, or do I have to go for, as we say, another ride on the merry-go-round instead of crossing that bridge into the experiential side? And it's important to be prepared for this happening because when the dopaminergic, passionate love starts to fade, a lot of people begin to question the relationship. They say, what's changed? It used to be that I would jump out of bed and the first thing I wanted to do was to text this person or call this person. I thought about this person every moment of the day. Maybe the relationship is over. But if you understand how the brain works and you're prepared for it, you can say to yourself, no, this is not the end of the relationship. In fact, this might be the beginning of the most important part where it transitions from being a mad fantasy to being something that's real and enduring. Which, you know, is actually a good place to, to jump on this is that, uh, you know, we were talking about this the other day in, a, in, a, in another situation, Dan and I, and uh, and and. People want to know, how do I meet this new person? How do, I, how do I engage with them? How do I get their attention? Dopamine takes care of a lot of, of, a lot of that. I think people uh, ought to remember some of, the, uh, some of the old advice, which is eventually you're going to end up as in a kind of friendship. And there's lots to be gained by exploring the friendships around you for those first contacts instead of absolutely brand new people. Some of the groundwork is laid for the later phases of love if you start with people you already know. That's not to say you have to uh, make that your exclusive uh, uh, place to look, but there's more to it if you're looking for the long term uh, because that's where you're going to end up anyway. A couple of things come to my mind. One is I find it really fascinating that, and it makes sense that 
industry in a capitalist society would want to nurture dopamine, right? Like, or use dopamine to nurture desire. Um, but there's also sort of these other chemicals in our body that will help us produce satisfaction. And so, well, first I want to say it's interesting to understand this. And this leads to the second thought, which is I want to ask, so how would somebody nurture these two things, right? Like there's definitely a advantage early in a relationship to nurturing uh, dopamine in your partner, right? Because they'll be excited to see you. If they don't, if they don't want more of you, they're not going to want to see you. And at the point where you want to transition into a relationship, you're looking for something more serious, either because you're at that phase of your life or you found somebody that you love being around. I think that a lot of people get stuck. They don't understand how do I, how do I transition to this next phase? So how would you nurture the next set of chemical emotional reactions? Well, you know, dopamine is about what's possible. And so it's largely about the imagination. We think about the future. We think about what might be. We think about what we desire. And we conjure up these pictures in our brain. The other neurotransmitters, the ones that lead to long-term happiness and satisfaction, are about the present moment. And the way we get information about the present moment is not with our imagination, but with our senses. Um, see, hear, taste, touch, smell. And so what you want to do to try to nurture those other neurotransmitters is to try to be in the present. And often we refer to that as mindfulness. When you're with someone, don't be thinking about where you're going for dinner or where you're going the next day or thinking about something that's going on at work. Try to really be with that person. Listen to the words that person's saying. Look at them and just see what is it that gives you pleasure. Um, what is it that makes you happy in the present moment simply being with this person? And I think that that Mike made a very good point. It's very much like friendship. Um, you know, we're, we're not with friends because of what they can do for us. We're with friends because how they make us feel right now, uh, whether they're funny or just make us feel content and peaceful. And, and that's what you need to focus on if you want to try to put something together long term. I think another thing to mention here is is how concerned so many people are that they not get stuck in the friend zone, you know, and and I I think that uh, the friend zone it's a lot to to unpack about that, but I think one thing if you're stuck in the friend zone uh, tells you is that it, it might not be you, it might be the other person that they're not the ones ready to be in a relationship uh, that uh, that that is less about. Uh, the possibility and the urge and more about let us be together and appreciate, uh, enjoy, take pleasure in, like the things uh, about this other person. So sometimes when you're stuck in the friend zone, it's, it's not you, it's, it's them. And another thing about, about the friend zone is, is uh, if you give away too much early in a relationship, uh, while you try to establish emotional intimacy, that's, that's a good thing. But if you take away the mystery too soon, then it's a it's a one way ticket right into that friend zone because the mystery goes away that much faster. You know that the chemical transition we see um, in relationships, starting out with dopamine and moving on to what we call the here and now brain chemicals, is actually recapitulated during sex. Um, when when people 
start having sex, the first thing they experience is sexual arousal. And that's a dopaminergic phenomenon. It's a future-looking phenomenon. When, when you're sexually excited, you're thinking about the great things that are about to happen. Once sex starts, ideally, the focus shifts from what's going to happen in the future to what's happening now. And it becomes very much about the sensory experiences, um, especially the sensory experience of touch. So the attention goes from the future into the present. And um, then during orgasm, thoughts about the future are shut down completely and everything comes into the present moment for the extremely intense experience of sexual climax. And what's fascinating is that scientists, um, primarily in Europe, have put naked people into brain scanners, stimulated to them to orgasm, and actually seen this playing out inside their brain. And you know what, what, what's also interesting is after sex is over, ideally, there's a stake in the corner of the room. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I was thinking about how, um, well, there's a few things that came to mind as you guys were talking. One was with friends, how the idea of spending time with somebody I really care about, whether it's a friend, a close friend or a family member, like that is going to drive me to buy that plane ticket or clear my schedule or uh, whatever, but it's this idea that I'm going to be hanging out with them. And then when I'm actually hanging out with them, I hang out with them because I, I really enjoy the time I spend when I'm with the people who I consider the, my closest friends. Um, the same thing is true from a dating perspective, right? Like I could spend the evening at home reading or screwing around on the computer, playing video games or writing or whatever, but like something drives me to get out of that house and and meet up with this person and then there's sort of like a different feeling that takes over and and I and so basically the, the phenomena that you're describing I could see that playing out in multiple different aspects of my life do those sound like accurate uh examples yeah you know I, I sometimes think of life as being like a um hills and valleys a series of hills and valleys that we've got to shift our perspective in and out um, we think about the future in order to give us energy and motivation to do things that are hard. Then we shift back to the present in order to reap the rewards of the hard work that we did. And, and I think that one of the problems with modern society is we don't take that second step enough. We, we always have to do more. We've, we've got to do more work. We've got to get more information. We have to go on more dates. And we're focused so much on that part of the equation, we just don't take the time to say, hey, uh, this is fantastic. You know, I love what I've worked for and I'm just going to enjoy it and not think about what's next for at least a little while. You know, Dan, Dan makes an awesome point right there because there's a spectacular irony built into human nature and we see it uh, every time we go to the office. If you, if you work around anybody who has a little, is a little higher up the ladder than you are. Uh, Think about it. The, the person who is most likely to be able to afford a gorgeous beach house over on the shore is the person least likely to go over there and sit in the sand doing nothing all day. Uh, the ones who have that high dopamine drive to achieve and earn and win, uh, very often 
can't make that transition that Dan just talked about, that, that shift to say, now I will appreciate the things I have. So it's, it's funny that those who can get those things often aren't able to enjoy them. Uh, and uh, I, I just find that uh, I find that a, a little makes makes you a little sad. But at the same time, there the, the answer is built into it. If you're one of those highly ambitious, highly accomplished people, it's about recognizing it and making a choice so you can appreciate those uh, those things. You know, I, I'll, I'll share a personal story. Dan and I worked on this book for for the more than more than two years and we thoroughly enjoyed the work. Uh, speaking for myself, I think I'm speaking for Dan, but a couple of months ago, we had reason to be up in Manhattan and he and I and another friend went up there and we had the best time doing absolutely nothing productive. <laughs> we, you know, we went to a couple of bars, we saw a show or two, we had some good meals, we sat up and talked late into the night. And that was a real shift for guys like us because we, we tend to keep pretty busy, but it was a wonderful feeling just to appreciate what was there. I remember a time um, a friend of mine had a terrible, a terrible family tragedy, and um, I got on a plane to go see him, and um, I got there, and we were just sitting together, and there was nothing that either one of us could do to make this tragedy any worse, but just the fact that we were there together was somehow a joyful thing in the midst of all of this sadness. And, and that's remained one of the high points of our relationship. And it's remarkable that it occurred in a setting when we were both absolutely powerless. Uh, and yet that moment of doing nothing, being able to do nothing, turned out to be extremely important. And I think that that leads directly back to the thing you were talking about earlier about about love and long term relationships. Uh, it's easy to forget when you don't have a partner and you're searching for a partner and you feel desperate for a partner that the 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 real value of of a lasting loving relationship is going to come long after that uh, that dopamine thrill has uh, become less than an, uh, a, a constant part of your relationship. It's about just what Dan said. It's about having someone there who is reliable, someone there who can, by their mere presence, make you comfortable and more at peace. And it's easy to forget that when you're wondering, well, gee, I, have, I haven't been with anybody in three months, or, or I guess everybody's turning me down lately, or I never get past the first date. Uh, there's there's something larger at stake in a relationship, something more possible. Dating coach Chris Luna here. This is the perfect time to take a quick break to talk to you about three simple things that you can do to dramatically change your life. First, listen to this entire podcast and then subscribe through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. This way you'll immediately be notified every time we share a new release. If you listen and apply the ideas we discuss on these podcasts, it will change your life forever. Second, go to craftchristmas.com, create an account, and become a member of our community. There you can read articles, listen to podcasts, watch videos, ask us questions, and document your journey in our forums. Great men don't become great on their own. All great men are members of a community, and Craft Charisma is your community. Finally, if you're serious, and I know that you are, about making massive changes to your life as quickly as possible, check out our live coaching programs on our website, 
Crowd Charisma Live programs are the fastest way to improve your dating and social life. And who knows, attend our live programs, let us get to know you, and you may end up as a member of the Craft Charisma team. Again, thank you for listening. Now back to the podcast. I have a question. So you hear sometimes people talk about being married for long periods of time and, and they start to get the itch where they end up cheating or they end up wanting to separate or divorce. And one of the, the things, sort of common forms of advice is that they should set aside time for each other, right? Maybe it's a date once a, once a, a week or once a month, or maybe it's going on some type of a vacation or trip regularly. Um, but there's some time where they can begin to step away from the everyday stresses of their normal life, kids, family, work, whatever, and just spend time with each other. Assuming that's an effective strategy, is that because there is a like there's this anticipatory sort of component where um, people are excited or is it uh, the fact that they're just they're creating a space where people they can just sort of spend time together and relax and enjoy each other's company is it or a combination of those two things or something else entirely different? Well, you know, our dopamine circuits evolve to keep us alive, but they don't always act in our best interest. And when we get that itch that has the potential to ruin what, what's a very valuable relationship, that's when our dopamine circuits are potentially going to be working against our best interest. And, you know, there, there are different, there are different tools we can bring to bear on these circuits to try to get them back into control. So um, we can counteract this, this desire for another person um, using the desired dopamine circuit. And so by doing that, what we would do is we would schedule brand new experiences with our spouse that we've never done before. So instead of going to the same old beach house every year, we'll take a vacation to a place we've never been to before. Maybe we'll do something even a little bit crazy like go skydiving or rock climbing or something like that. So you hear, you hear the advice, freshen up the relationship by not just going to your old comfortable haunts. Try something new to inject some new dopamine into the relationship. But that's not the only way you can do it. You could also maybe just spend time with each other in your own familiar places. And in that respect, you're bringing the here and now neurotransmitter chemicals to bear against the destructive dopamine. And depending on the personality of the two people, that may work just as well. Um, simply looking away from the day-to-day -day pressures of life, looking away from the constant barrage of dopaminergic demands of work and children and um, the commercials we're watching and the apps we're carrying around and just appreciating the other person. So I, I think you're right. I think that, that it's important to spend time with your significant other, but there's different ways of doing it. And sometimes we may want to try to stimulate the dopamine and sometimes we may want to try to stimulate the here and now chemicals. And, and I think it's vital that, that one of the points Dan made there gets stressed over and over again. If, the, if, if you're hearing this and you say, oh, the solution is let's have a date night every Friday night or uh, once a month, let's go to a museum. 
No, you've missed the point. Anything you make regular and uh, scheduled is going to become part of the wallpaper. It is the surprise that matters. Now, if it's going to have a regular date night and every Friday we do some different thing, that's that's okay. But if it's every Friday night, now we go to dinner where we weren't doing that before, in a few months, it's not going to be special. The key is that surprise. And and a good thing, which which I know is, is going to be, this, this is going to matter to a lot of your listeners, is it doesn't have to be, in my opinion, it doesn't have to be something you cooperate about. If one person is popping in with these surprises, these good surprises, on some sort of, with some sort of frequency, uh, you've, you've, you've brought half, half the load to, to the show, so to speak. Uh, it, 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 and it may encourage the other person to begin to do that as well. Uh, regularly scheduled fun time is not the answer, though. You guys have mentioned mindfulness a little bit, the idea of presence. Why are those things such effective strategies in, in sort of working through um, some of these desires or impulses that we have to, to build these healthier, uh, healthier connections? I think it's because dopamine is meant to be the spice of life. Um, it's the salt or the sugar that we put on food. It's not supposed to be the thing that we are eating exclusively. The, the main food for the brain is input from the senses. It's, it's paying attention to what's around us, to what we're seeing right now, to the scents that are in the air, to the sounds that we're hearing. And that's what mindfulness is. And by really making that the primary food for your brain, being here, being now, paying attention, it can actually make the dopamine surges more powerful. It's just like if you have a diet of junk food, eating a special dessert is not going to mean that much for you. But if you've been eating healthy all week long and suddenly you get this delicious piece of cake, it's going to give you a great deal of pleasure. So by being mindful, by living in the present, those bursts of excitement we get when possibility present themselves, uh, those are going to be much more strong. Let's do this too, to to uh, so everyone can can appreciate just how different the realms of dopamine and and the here and now chemicals these these two areas are. Imagine a bright line, and on the left is dopamine. Everything dealing with dopamine is in the imagination. It does not exist. On the right side of that red line are the here and nows, and those are almost exclusively of coming through your senses, how something feels or tastes or smells, or looks, you can actually put your hand on the thing in that here and now realm. In the realm of dopamine, you cannot. So if you're going to be mindful, you're talking about using your senses to experience, not just appreciate, but experience the things around you. Uh, uh, one of the things that, that I do, and this may work for no one but me, but uh, I, I teach creative writing, and I ask people at the beginning of the semester to describe something as thoroughly as they can. Invariably, when they begin, they simply describe how it looks. And I point this out so they can go into it deeper and say, well, how does, how does the carpet uh, look? How does it feel under your fingers? Can you smell something from it? Uh, God forbid. <laughs> I can, you know, is, when you smell it, do you taste something on the back of your tongue? Really explore all five senses because it's easy to take that overwhelming visual part and say that's the beginning and the end. Mindfulness is about the whole sensory experience and it's a 
total separation from the dopamine imagination. Yeah, it's looking at the world in a very in a very different way. And let me give you a simple example. If somebody were to ask you, um, what does it mean to ring a doorbell? Well, the dopaminergic answer would be you ring a doorbell to see if someone is at home. It's an abstract, um, purpose-driven kind of an answer. An alternative answer would be ringing a doorbell is reaching out with your finger and pushing a button. That's purely experiential, and that's a here and now kind of a description. And so it's good to be aware, how are we interacting with the world right now? Is it an abstract idea interaction using our dopamine circuits, or is it a physical sensory interaction using our here and now circuits? Yeah, it's like sometimes you're the chef, and sometimes you're the guy who builds the kitchen. How does this play into addiction? Drugs of addiction release dopamine in a way that is pretty much more powerful than any other behavior that there is. Instead of triggering addiction by going through the standard brain circuits of experience, it basically acts like a chemical guided missile and, and it just blasts dopamine into the brain. And remember, the purpose of dopamine is to keep us alive from an evolutionary standpoint. And so what the brain thinks is that the more dopamine a behavior gives me, the more important it is for my survival. And drugs of addiction really confuse and scramble this circuit. Um, and that's why you see people giving up their job, giving up their family, even giving up their home so that they can keep feeding addictive drugs into their body. And from the outside, it, it seems utterly irrational. You see a homeless person on the street drinking out of a paper bag. They've given up everything to self-administer that alcohol. It makes no sense from the outside, but from the inside, their dopamine circuits are confused. And their dopamine circuits are saying, hey, there's nothing more important for your survival than, uh, than to continue taking this chemical. And um, that's why addictive drugs are so powerful and addictions are so hard to overcome. What if the addiction is a person or a habit? You know, there's debate about to what degree these things are the same as chemical addictions. Um, so, for example, gambling seems to be very, very close. Um, you know, once again, doing brain scan studies, we can see dopamine being released when people are given gambling tasks, when they're put in brain scanners. So that one's pretty clear. Being addicted to a person, I think, is a lot more complicated. And I'm not sure it's quite so simple as dopamine release. I think there might be a lot of other things going on at the same time. A lot of people who are listening to this are guys and they're really ambitious. They're trying to come up in life or trying to acquire more. How, how does dopamine play into our ambition? Well, you know, among the most important ingredients for success is energy, ambition, motivation, and creativity. These are the gifts of dopamine. No matter how much raw willpower you have, it's going to be pretty tough to compete against someone who is motivated and excited. And that's where the classic advice, find your passion, comes from. 
you're going to be most successful if your job is doing something that gets you really, really excited. Because then staying late at the office, staying up all night is going to feel effortless because it's what you want to do. So the best piece of advice is, is to try to find something that you're passionate about. And if you can't, then try to become passionate about the thing that you do have. And I think the best way to do that is to learn as much as possible as you can about it. The more we know about things, the more interesting they become and the more likely they are to ignite our excitement. And you'll notice he didn't say uh, find the uh, find the thing you're best at and pursue that. It's find the thing that you that really inspires you that, that draws your interest. Uh, I think most of us find that if we are really interested in something, we can learn it, and our passion is going to drive that, and probably in the end make us better at it than uh, people who are simply doing it because they had an initial aptitude. In certain ways, that goes back to mindfulness too, right? Like paying attention to yourself and seeing what is it, what are the things that you really enjoy or love doing. Yeah. And the other classic advice is that um, if you want to make a lot of money, don't go directly for the money. Do what you love and the money will come. Because if you're just going after the money, it's going to be an uphill slog all the way. And you're just not going to be as effective as if you're following your passion. And I always mention this what I'm about to say at this point, some of these things, you know, I, I've, I've discovered as we discovered as we wrote the book is like, oh, some of this, some of this advice is, is age old. Some of these are things that mom and dad told us. And, and I think that's absolutely true. But the thing is, uh, we now know through research from the past few decades and some of the research that we talk about in this book, there is a biological basis for these ideas. They weren't just handed down from uh, people that came before and let's hope they're right. No, there's a, there's a, a, a biological neurochemical defense. There's a biological neuro, neurochemical advocacy to be made for these ideas that we're offering today. And if you pay attention, you can actually feel them playing out in your brain. You know, just like you had that fascinating experience of noticing that when um, you were injured and you were eating donuts, it felt good in a certain way. And when you were getting back in shape doing the opposite thing, it felt good in a very similar way. You can actually feel the neurotransmitters playing out in your brain if you pay attention. I mean, I, I know how I felt. Are you able to describe what that feeling is like? It feels like you are accomplishing something and your future is getting better. The, the same excitement you get from being about to bite into a, a donut is the exact same excitement you feel by taking the box of donuts and throwing them in the garbage. You're improving your future, but in two separate and opposite ways. Jay-Z had a, a set of lyrics and I don't know if I'm saying this right, but I think it was like, if my situation ain't improving, I want to murder everything moving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you got to feel like you're moving forward, right? Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think, it's, uh, I think it's fascinating. You've mentioned creativity a few times. How does dopamine come into play with creativity? So um, dopamine being the molecule of more is always interested in finding new ways of doing things that are going to be more effective and more efficient than the old ways. And in order to do that, we've got to make connections between things that previously appeared to be unconnected. That's the essence of creativity, um, discovering 
things that did not appear to have any connection to one another, that they are actually linked and being able to find that link. And people who have very high levels of dopamine have a much easier time um, seeing those links. Now, what's interesting is that if it gets up to be too high, they start drawing links between things that actually don't have any connection. And that's when we start to see symptoms of mental illness, of insanity. So, um, for example, the genius who may say, um, wow, I now realize that the way an apple falls off a tree is the exact same mechanism by which the moon revolves around the earth. That, that was the genius insight of Sir Isaac Newton. Well, it also turned out that he was insane and he saw all kinds of connections between words in the Bible based on counting what order they came in um, and what number they were. So, so dopaminergic creativity is about seeing things that other people can't see, but if it gets too intense, it can slide over into insanity very easily. It's fascinating because those things might have been in the Bible, right? He might have really been seeing them, but it doesn't mean that it's connected to deeper truths about reality. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, who's to say the guy was a genius? Um, maybe he saw things that we can't see. Um, it, it's hard to know where genius ends and insanity begins. Yeah. I, I have no clue what you're referencing. So it could be just absolutely insane. But I, I was thinking like, just like there's patterns in life and um, there are patterns. Sometimes we fixate on things as human beings and we see patterns and that pattern might exist, but it's not connected to what we think it's connected to. And I feel like there's a sense of insanity within within that. Do you see where I'm going with this? I absolutely do. Yeah. And what's interesting is that ordinarily when we get those kinds of things, we say, wow, I thought I saw a connection. And then a minute later we say, no, 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 I just imagined it. We throw it away. But I think that if you're thinking about maximizing your creativity, you shouldn't be so quick to throw those connections away and say, wait a minute, where did it come from? I thought of it for some reason and try and trace back and find out where it came from. Yeah, I, I find this with my dreams. Uh, sometimes I'll dream and I'll realize that it's connected to some some other emotion right? Like maybe it's fear, maybe it's excitement, or maybe it's anticipation, or maybe it's desire. But like I've noticed that the other thing I thought about, as you said, that I had a conversation recently with somebody, and we we're talking about the creative process and how um, he was saying he wrote a script and he went back and, and at the time he wasn't thinking about a lot of sort of deeper connections uh, that he later made to things in his past or other subject matter. And he goes, maybe I'm just going way too deep. I said, well, the idea is that you put on paper or on your computer or whatever had to come from somewhere, right? They're pulled from some place. If you, there's some type of experience that sort of led, to, like triggered the idea or allowed you to make the association. And um, I mean, those two things sort of came to my mind, uh, as you mentioned. Yeah, that's right. Uh, there's a lot more going on in our brain than we're aware of. And when we put these things on paper, they're not coming out randomly. Uh, and we may not know what the meaning is behind them, but there is a part of our brain that does know it. And a lot of times there, there, there is great treasure to be gained by looking at the things we produce that we don't understand ourselves. And, and in our book, um, 
we do talk about how dreams can be a very rich source of creativity. And we talk about a strategy called dream incubation, where you can maximize the likelihood that your dream is going to come up with a solution to a problem you're struggling with. Can you guys talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So, so when you dream, um, your dopamine circuits are really freed up um, because as we've been talking about, dopamine is about what's not real. Um, often what's not yet real, but sometimes what can never be real. And it's the here and now circuits that keep us grounded in reality. But when we dream, um, we're unconscious. And so our here and now circuits are shut off and that releases dopamine to basically go wild. Um, and there are all kinds of fascinating stories in history about great experiments that have happened to people while they've been dreaming. Uh, the most famous is the, um, the discovery of the structure of the benzene molecule by a chemist named um, Kekulé. So at any rate, if you have a problem, um, what you want to do is try to make thinking about that problem the last thing you do before falling asleep. Dreams tend to be very visual, and so you want to try to visualize the problem. So if it's a problem with a relationship, um, think about the face of the person you're having a problem with. If you need inspiration, think about a blank piece of paper. Um, try to find some concrete visual model. And the other thing is that dopamine is driven by desire. So you have to make finding a solution to be incredibly important to you. Really build yourself up. Say, my life is going to be so much better if I can solve this problem. My life is going to change in all of these different ways. If you do that as you're falling asleep, if you've got a pad of paper next to your bed, as soon as you wake up, write down your dream. Because oftentimes the first impression you have is going to be, oh, this dream has nothing to do with what I was thinking about. But as you know, um, dreams can be confusing, they can be very deep, and something that initially seems to be irrelevant may turn out to have a very interesting solution if you give it a little bit more thought. Our producer had wrote down a question, and so he clearly wants me to <laughs> ask it, but I'm curious where he's coming from with this, but he says, uh, why are creative types more thoughtful or scatterbrained than others? If that's assuming that's true. Yeah, yeah. Mike, you uh, want to get that? Well, you know, what we're talking about, well, why don't you talk about what we're talking about is low latent inhibition. And that's the ability to, uh, if you're going to have, if you're going to be highly dopaminergic, you're going to be uh, attracted to more things. You're going to be interested in more things uh, with less provocation. And the lower that level is of, of to being able to draw your interest. Like if you see a man walking down the street, you're not interested. You see a man in a clown suit walking down the street, you, that gets your attention. Well, if you're highly dopaminergic, uh, there is a possibility that you're going to be a, uh, distracted by anything that would be wallpaper to anybody else. So it's very easy to be distracted. And, and, and Dan can expand a little bit on this in a more technical sense. But basically, it comes down to your inability to filter out things that uh, might uh, might otherwise distract you uh, or keep you from focusing on things that are more important but less exciting. I want to get in the technical part, but really quickly, can I'm curious, can this change over the course of our life and through our circumstances, or is this something that's generally fixed? Well, you know, We've been talking about um, the differences between the dopamine world of the possible and the here and now world of the actual. 
And we've sort of implied it, but we haven't come out and said it. And that is that the two oppose one another. So when you are in a dopaminergic cloud of possibility, the real world is being suppressed. And you may have had this experience. Have you ever been reading a really interesting book and you're so engrossed in it, somebody's calling your name and you don't even hear them? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and so they oppose one another. And by the same token, if you're being mindful and you're focusing on the present, you're not thinking about what's next. You're not thinking about different possibilities. So creative types, they've got wonderfully strong dopamine systems. And so they're constantly living in this amorphous world of what's possible. And as a result, they don't notice that they put on two different color socks. They don't realize that they haven't done the dishes in a week. Um, they, they completely forgot that they promised to meet you um, at the bar at 9 p.m. And, and that's, that's one of the main reasons why creative people can be so difficult to live with because they're completely divorced from the real world. Now, can they change? I think the answer is largely no. Um, I think that there have been many, many frustrated spouses of creative geniuses who have tried to get them to pay attention to picking the kids up from school on time and have utterly failed. I think it's something in our DNA. I think we can fiddle around the edges. But I think that on some level, it's just important for us to accept who we are. The reason why I ask that question, because I feel like in different contexts of my life, I exhibit different qualities. Like I, I there were times in my life where I was incredibly structured and there are times where I was a lot less structured, uh, maybe because I was trying to solve a problem and I didn't know what the answer was. And so I was testing and trying lots of different things until I could potentially find or hopefully find a solution. Um, and then when I did, I might go back to being a little bit more structured, but I find that it's quite interesting because people who know me from different phases of my life perceive me very differently. And, um, I remember, talking to somebody who knew me like where I was going through one of those phases where I was testing lots of different things. And she goes, Oh, you're just like, you don't have a lot of structure. And I was like, well, I wouldn't have gotten some of the best universities in the world if I, if I was like that when I was in school. So different, different problems like entrepreneurship to a certain extent, depends on what you're doing can be a creative endeavor where there's a lot of testing and trial and error, unless you're running an algorithm, like you're, you found a model that somebody else did. You're you're in like a parallel industry, and you're sort of executing that model. So that's what that's where that came from. I definitely see what you're saying about how certain people have certain attributes that just are part of them. But I also find in myself that I, I seem to behave differently in different contexts. In some ways, it sounds like you're talking a little bit about the creative process. Um, there's the brainstorming phase where you just try all kinds of different things, even though some of them might not be all that realistic just to see what works. And then there is the refinement stage where you choose one thing and you do everything you can to make it work. So I think that both of those are kind of dopaminergic because in both those situations, you're trying to build a better future for yourself, but you're doing them um, from different approaches. And I think people who, who aspire to be creative uh, and, and are, feel like they're having trouble 
might take a lesson, there is a thing you can do to help your creativity. And that is to simply experience as many things as you can. Uh, the, the great ideas for a new business or a new piece of art do not come from sitting at a desk and having an agenda to work through. They come from wandering around and taking in things through your senses and letting them percolate, seeing what bounces against something else. Whenever I teach writing, I always tell people, get some art in you. Uh, learn to play an instrument. Uh, read a book you think is interesting. Learn to juggle. Do something. If you, had, if you have uh, some use for it in your work, that's wonderful. If it collides into something else and creates some uh, wonderful uh, uh, new idea, that's lovely too. And if it has no purpose whatsoever in the end, you had fun doing it. And that's plenty right there. So if you want to be creative, indulge your your uh, laziness isn't the isn't the word restful mind perhaps indulge indulge your uh, your curiosities that's right if you want to be creative and connect things that have never been connected before you got to have things to connect and because that these are brand new relationships you never know what's going to come in handy and, and so you're absolutely right um art music whatever it's impossible to know what the next connection is going to be. You might as well build up your store as much as you can. If all you ever do is walk around the block, the next thing you write or try to build is going to be made of the things you saw walking around the block. If you went to Europe or you went to another block or went to another city or looked inside your closet, now you've added something to the potential inventory, and that's where the new things start. I can think of a bunch of writing examples of things I've read about famous writers, but the example of this that is the most clear to me is the Henry Ford automobile story about how he had walked into, a, I think it was a meat, um, it was like a slaughterhouse or something where there was like a assembly line where each person would cut off a different piece of meat. And then he went back and applied that to create an assembly line for automobiles and mass produced automobiles and became one of the most successful people in the history of business. Exactly. That's a perfect example. Perfect. Perfect. I think your guys' work is absolutely fascinating. I'm getting sort of constrained on time, and I know you guys probably have other things you got to do today. But for people who are listening to this, they're interested in the things that we're talking about. They're interested in your book. What are some of the other things that they're going to get from reading your book that's going to have an impact on their life? Well, we never even got to, and not that we, we probably we've we've taken a lot of people's time, but politics for sure. Uh, we have some thoughts about why uh, politics is so divisive, uh, and and we have some evidence that shows a real difference between the brains of people on the left and people on the right. This has consequences for how we interact with one another and how we consume news, and why we have uh, such little patience for our opposition. Uh, that's, that's the first thing that comes to my mind. Dan? I think that um, we've covered a lot of the most important things. Um, people reading this book are going to learn to better understand what's happening to them in relationships, why they fall out of love, why love doesn't last forever, and how to make a relationship transition into something more enduring. And they're also going to learn things um, about addictions and other potentially destructive habits as well as how to make themselves more creative and ultimately how they can find a balance in their life. You guys, this has been absolutely awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. And if you guys are listening to this, I'm going to post more about Dan and Mike and all the work that they're doing and their book. 
in the, on the Craft Christmas website and within the description of this podcast so you can find about out more about them, their book, and get access to them more easily. Thank you guys so much for taking the time to chat with me. Thank you, Chris. It's been great. My pleasure. It's dating coach Chris Thona here. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And we absolutely love making this podcast. We make this podcast for you. So if there's somebody that you want on the show, let me know. I will yell, scream, stand in front of their house, do everything I do to get them on the show for you. Also, don't hesitate to follow the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and Stitcher. You can also give us a shout out through social media, Facebook, Twitter, share it with your friends. And lastly, Go to the Craft Christmas website and create an account. There you can talk about the podcast and communicate with me directly. So thank you again for taking time to listen. You will hear again from me soon.